Friends, as you're taking your seats, would you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew? As we continue our series through Matthew, we pick it up now in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. You can find our reading this morning on page 817 of the Pew Bible in front of you. We will be reading verses 38 through the end of the chapter. Before we read, let me, if I can, remind you of something Pastor Sean mentioned a few weeks ago. Today we will see the outcome, uh, at least this stage of the outcome, of what Pastor Sean called the Messianic Secret. You see, Jesus came in his earthly ministry, and he didn't give all of the information all at once to everyone. He goes and he heals people. He tells people all of these different things. And then what does he do? He charges them to tell no one, because the time was not yet right. But as we continue through the gospel, as we march through Matthew, we see that new stages blossom and things become clearer and clearer. And so far, uh, even in just chapter 12, Jesus has revealed that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Quite the divine claim itself. huh? He who instituted it from ages past. He's elevated himself above the temple. He said something greater than the temple is here. He rebukes Pharisees for connecting him with the devil, uh, calling it ludicrous and proving them to be wrong, and then reveals that great and terrifying reality that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, a continued denial of the message of the gospel will result in something only God can prescribe, eternal damnation under the wrath of the Almighty. Uh, friends, if <clears throat> it wasn't already obvious, it's getting more obvious now as to what Jesus is doing in his earthly ministry. And he continues to clarify even in our passage this morning. So would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Give your attention to verses 38 through 50. Beloved friends, hear now the living and active word of God. Allow it now to pierce to the division of soul and of spirit, to joint and of marrow. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be 
with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Indeed, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let us pray now that he would nourish us today with this reading. Almighty and glorious God, our King Jesus Christ, you who spoke these words, we pray that you would send us now the blessed Holy Spirit. Not that he would be blasphemed, but that he would do the work for which you send him to give us understanding and through understanding faith in Jesus Christ. This we ask in your name. Amen. Friends, I wonder if you ever done anything embarrassing? Ever? Have you ever done anything embarrassing with someone you loved right there next to you? And they realize you're doing something embarrassing and maybe you haven't picked up just yet. And suddenly you get an elbow right into the ribs. Or if you're sitting at a table, you get a foot in your shin. You try not to react. Maybe you uh, hear this or, or feel this reaction by others and you're thinking to yourself, what? What did, what did I say? What did I do? What happened? I'm, I'm missing something. You're embarrassing yourself in your ignorance, right? In saying something you shouldn't or doing something you shouldn't or potentially insulting someone without even realizing it. And then later, you, you sort of circle back, right? And you're like, why did you do that? And they explain to you, well, so-and-so's nephew that you were talking about, don't say that, right? Don't do that. You get some sort of explanation. There's a key question that happens between that explanation, right? That explanation and the, and the kick to the shins. And that question is, what are you talking about? What's wrong? What do you mean? I, I, I don't understand. This morning we come to a, a very famous passage, and I think actually a, a very famously confusing passage, such that we could approach Jesus and say, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't get it. We, we, we don't want to be the butt of the joke. We, we don't want to be the guy to, to, to raise our hand and say, excuse me, I don't understand that. Can you repeat that? Can you explain that? We get terrified that, that maybe it's just us, Right? Maybe it's just us in the room, that, that it's just me, that I don't understand, that I have some sort of spiritual egg on my face that prevents me from understanding what everyone around me understands. Friends, as this gospel message of Jesus Christ and his ministry is getting clearer and clearer, we especially don't want to ask that question. As Jesus is being more explicit, as he's revealing more explicitly what's going on, we don't want to be left out, but we don't want to suffer the embarrassment of asking that question. What are you talking about? What do you mean? Friends, let me tell you what Jesus means this morning in Matthew chapter 12. It's simple. That only Jesus' work of salvation is effective and sufficient to save people. That only Jesus' work of salvation is effective and sufficient to save people. Yes, it is that simple. It is, it is that clear, though maybe not precisely in the words that Jesus uses. 
You see, as Jesus proclaims this truth, we, we need to really see not just the words. We need to hear not just the words Jesus speaks, but we need to see the attitude or the posture of the people around him. And as we do so, I think we will begin to understand that Jesus is teaching that exclusive reality that only he can save. And only his work is sufficient and effective to do so. And so this morning, uh, in trying to explain what Jesus is saying, I want to explain what Jesus is saying by showing you the two parties that are in front of him. That there are two types of people that, that are with Jesus in this moment. Those who are against him and his ministry and his gospel. And those who are for him. There are those who seek any reason, any reason at all to reject Jesus. They look for any excuse they can to get out from under the reality that Jesus brings. And there are those who want Jesus to keep speaking. They want him to continue teaching because these people want the rest that Jesus is promising. Because they see something the other party doesn't. The futility of their own work. The futility of their own effort and their own power to achieve full reconciliation with God himself. So let's look at these two parties this morning. First by looking at those against Jesus. Uh, It's very interesting. Jesus here gives us a set of common characteristics of those who oppose him. Of those who oppose the work of the gospel. Look again with me at verse 38. You see, the Pharisees come uh, uh, to Jesus and demand a sign. They say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, this in and of itself isn't a bad request, is it? Uh, Jesus, we want to see something from you. We we want you to tell us who you are. We want you uh, uh, to give us something to hang our hats on. I mean, it's true, after all, if you go to the book of Acts, don't the apostles do many mighty signs and wonders? And that functions to to, to confirm the message of the gospel they preach. Why should I believe you, Paul? Oh, you just raised Eutychus from the dead? Well, maybe you're right that Jesus did rise from the dead. You see how that works, right? The signs and miracles are not bad. They're not uh, uh, things which detract from the gospel, but they do function in many places and in many ways to confirm it. But the problem is, that wasn't their real request. And Jesus knows. Jesus, always perceptive, all-knowing Jesus, hears the real thing they're actually saying. All the stuff that you just did, the healing, all of the teaching, all of the miracles that have already happened in the gospel, those are not enough. You need to do something more. You need to do something grander. You need to do something that is unmistakably divine. Friends, you hear what they're saying to Jesus? They're looking at Jesus, the king of the universe, and they're saying, dance for me, monkey. Do my bidding. Prove it. And so he responds in verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You see, what Jesus does here is he he gives us, I think, three characteristics of people who oppose God himself. 
Three characteristics that, that, that go not just with this generation that he's speaking to, but with previous generations of those who oppose God. And indeed, future generations of those who will oppose him. These, these three characteristics. The first one is evil. He says, an evil generation seeks for a sign. Jesus calls them evil because their reason for the request is evil. They're seeking to undermine God. They're seeking to to tell Jesus, you are a liar. All of the healing you've already performed, all of the the exorcisms and the casting out of the, the evil spirits, all of the people you've helped, all of the comfort you have brought, is meaningless. Friends, is there anything more evil than those who would seek to denigrate the work of someone who has come to help other people? Someone who would stand in the way of of not just benefits to this life, but of a truer and greater reality, the forgiveness of sins itself. Friends, this is what makes someone who opposes God evil. They oppose other people coming to God. This is the the greatest evil that they could possibly do. That in asking for for something more, in, in asking for something bigger and better, the Pharisees do precisely what Jesus has warned against. They tell him that the work of the Spirit that has already happened is worthless. Is there any greater blasphemy than to tell the Holy Spirit you are impotent and ineffective? Friends, you see that the the Pharisees, even once hearing of what is coming their way, if they continue to blaspheme, what do they do? They turn around and immediately blaspheme. The second characteristic that Jesus gives of those who oppose him is that they're adulterous. This is a common Old Testament metaphor, of course, for, for Israel's sins. You haven't been faithful. You haven't been faithful to the God who loved you, to the God who called you out of Egypt, to the God who gave you a, a land flowing with milk and honey, a God who gave you a righteous and good king, a God who has given you everything you could possibly want and more. And yet, what have they done? They have turned away from him. Sadly, as we come into the pages of the New Testament, we see that the Pharisees carry the torch. The baton has been passed in this great relay race. And the Pharisees, in fact, just simply don't believe that Jesus could perform something bigger. Okay, you've got a couple tricks up your sleeve Mr. Nazarene, sure, you can make it seem like this, but we need indisputable evidence here. And in reality, I don't think you can do it. I don't think you can actually pull it off. You see, Jesus wants to, uh, excuse me, the Pharisees want to act toward Jesus as as other uh, uh, magicians do. I want to learn how you do this trick to prove to you that I'm better than you. To prove to you that you can't fool me. And this is because the Pharisees, like so many Israelites before them, don't actually serve God. They serve themselves. They serve their own interests. They are adulterous. 
because they have turned their backs on the covenant vows that God has made with them and have not reciprocated his affections for them. Friends, their hearts are far from God. But it's not just their hearts. The the third characteristic Jesus shows of those who oppose him and oppose his ministry and, and the gospel is that they are blind. You see, Jesus tells them of a sign. Jesus doesn't say, I'm not going to give you a sign. That's not what Jesus says. He says, no sign will be given except one sign. And that sign is the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. The the, the sign that that Jonah, who was in the belly of the whale for, for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man shall be in the belly of the earth. That's the sign. So in this way, Jesus is pointing both forwards and backwards, right? Jesus is showing them, hey, the fulfillment of Jonah's prophecy is happening before your very eyes. And so I tell you what, I'll give you something unmistakably divine. Jesus looks at them and says, you're going to kill me and I'm going to bring myself back to life. And you know what? You still won't believe you still won't be satisfied because you're blind. You're blind. You can't see what Jonah, what Jonah in the Old Testament, the the book that the Pharisees could probably on the spot recite from memory, from front to back. They, They couldn't even tell Jesus what Jonah was about. They couldn't even tell him the the meaning and the significance of Jonah. And so Jesus shows them that their request is in bad faith. That nothing will satisfy them. Nothing at all. And so he calls them an evil, adulterous, and blind generation. Just like Israel, right? Just like Israel in the wilderness. Israel when they were conquering the promised land. Israel during the time of the judges and the time of the kings. All previous generations and all future generations of opposition to Jesus have these three characteristics. They are evil, they are adulterous, and they are blind. They all saw many signs and many wonders. They saw fire coming down from heaven and they still rejected Elijah. They still rejected the the, the greater prophet Elisha who came and, and performed greater things than Elijah did. And it still wasn't enough. But what does the prophecy of Jonah tell us? That Nineveh saw no signs. Nineveh saw no wonders. Nineveh heard a message by a prophet and believed. That's it. It's that simple. The arch enemies of the people of God put themselves in sackcloth and ashes and repented at words. Not signs, not miracles, words. They believed the foreshadow. They believed the lesser thing. And now the greater Jonah is right there before their eyes. The Pharisees have God in the flesh right in front of them. But friends, let me show you this, that they could not be further from him. This is what it looks like to oppose God. And Jesus actually illustrates the point for them in verses 43 through 45. 
You can keep trying this by yourself, Pharisees. I'll give you a sign. I'll give you a sign of exorcism. Right? This is the unclean spirit that goes out of a person. Jesus can perform. He can dance like a monkey. But if nothing happens besides a little spring cleaning, if nothing happens, then the Pharisees sort of trying to arrange it by themselves, what's going to happen to them? Something far worse. You see, what's left by the spirit is a vacuum. And at the end of this illustration, the spirit comes back and that spirit invites seven of his best buddies who are worse than him. And there's no one there to lock the door. There's no one there to fend them off, to tell them you are no longer welcome here. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on this passage, says something that I think we all need to hear. He says, to become scared of going to hell Scared, perhaps, even to the point of confessing one's sins and accepting baptism is not enough. It would only lead the soul empty, unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Such a condition cannot meet the deepest needs of the human heart. Friends, what is our deepest need? What is the deepest need of our heart? It is a complete and total upheaval and transformation. It's more than just the the removal of wickedness. It's more than just the removal of, of an evil spirit. We need something to then move in, and that thing that moves in must be righteous, must be good, must be powerful and effective. Friends, you know who I'm speaking of. It's the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus is beating the same drum as he did last week, isn't he? The fundamental problem of the Pharisees is that they don't trust the work, the power, the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit of God. Friends, what we need is we need the Holy Spirit to come set up shop. And not just to organize what's there, but to get rid of all of it. And to refurnish completely. To give us something brand new. So I think, I hope you see the importance of Jesus' teaching. What use is a miracle? What use is a sign? If you're not going to do anything with the empty space, but try on your own again, which still hasn't worked, what good does it do us to demand more evidence from God? We just sang these words, but hear them again. What more can he say than to you he has said? You who for refuge to Jesus have fled. The gospel is crystal clear. The message of the gospel, the principle, the foundation of the gospel is crystal clear. Only Jesus Christ must do this work. The work of righteousness. The work of salvation. So flee to him. Don't demand signs from him. Don't demand anything from him but what he is willing to give to you. What he is willing to promise to you. We need something stronger than books on on how to shape up and and self-help strategies, don't we? We need a God who is loving enough to come in and to remove our sin and give us a righteousness that is not our own. That we would go forth and live in obedience. We don't need a sign. 
We don't need a miracle to prove to us who Jesus says he is. We simply need the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to come in to transform us and to show us what he means. And that brings us to the second type of people that Jesus speaks of, those for Jesus and his ministry. Uh, Friends, it's Sunday after Thanksgiving, so you know I have to ask this question. Are you sick of turkey yet? Are you sick of heated up mashed potatoes and mac and cheese? Nobody's sick of the apple pie, I know, okay? Leftovers is sort of the the, the double-edged sword of Thanksgiving, right? Leftovers are both the, the greatest part of Thanksgiving and then eventually the worst part of Thanksgiving, right? Sometimes, uh, I think when we come to, to uh, a gospel, and in particular here in Matthew, we can come to a portion of Scripture that we don't really understand how things are connected, and it seems a little bit like leftovers, doesn't it? seems like I'm grabbing mashed potatoes to go with my chicken tacos. And you know what? Sure, that's a meal, but they don't really go together, right? Just throw everything I don't know what to do with. So is that what verses 46 through 50 are? Sort of Matthew saying, I don't really know where to put this, so I'll just put it here. Sort of a leftover. I don't think so. I think he purposely picks this order to show us this second type of people, those for Jesus and his ministry. We see that Jesus' mother and brothers come to him asking to seek him. And Matthew doesn't tell us why. But if you go to Mark 3, you read Mark's version. And in verse 21, we're told that when his family heard what he was saying, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, before you get on to Mary and the brothers here, okay, this is natural. Jesus is doing something very dangerous, as we will come to see later in the gospel. He's fighting with people who can put him to death. He's fighting with people who want to put him to death. And it is only natural for a mother, out of love for her son, to go to him and say, Jesus, 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 no, 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 no. no. Don't do this. Don't say this. Don't make them angry. Please, please don't do this. To plead with him, to tell him, no, Jesus, you're going to get yourself killed. But here's the thing, Jesus... Jesus doesn't need Mary's protection. Mary needs his. There's a greater enemy than the Pharisees, and that is the spirit of opposition that has so often plagued God's people. It's the spirit of opposition that is alive in the world. And so Jesus, out of love for his mother, refuses their summons. Out of a deep care for Mary and his brothers, he refuses and instead seeks to do what God sent him on this earth to do. And that is to make disciples who love God. And to live a righteous life. And so friends, I don't want you to see here that that, that Jesus is sort of destroying the nuclear family. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not saying mothers... Stop, you know, caring for your children. He's not saying, children, that you can disobey your parents. Sorry, none of you are looking at me. Children. He's not saying you can disobey your parents, okay? What he's saying is that there is a loyalty that transcends familial bonds. And that loyalty belongs to God alone. 
that, God, uh, that Jesus is in fact obeying his Father in heaven. Leon Morris says it this way. He says that Jesus is not so much downgrading loyalty to human family as he is insisting on the importance of loyalty to God. Jesus isn't saying if your loyalty is here, you need to bring it down. No, he's saying if your loyalty is here, good. But your loyalty to God needs to be higher. Your loyalty to God needs to be greater. And I think Jesus' words here can be very difficult to swallow, difficult to understand. I mean, just imagine how Mary reacted, right? What do you mean he said no? What do you mean he's not coming over here to me? You see, family is so important to us. But I want to show you that Jesus agrees. Jesus agrees with that. Jesus, in fact, does something better than a an earthly family. So I want you to read with me verses 46 through 50, but I want you to read it from a different perspective right now. For those of you who find these words difficult to hear because your family is incredible, praise God for that. But read it with me with these lenses. Read it with me from the perspective of someone who just spent Thanksgiving by themselves because their family is either no longer here or because their family didn't invite them. Read it with me from this perspective again. This is verse, uh, excuse me, 48 through 50. But Jesus replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. How does that impact you now, my friends? How does that hit you now? That you, a dear, beloved Christian, are sweet and cherished by Jesus and by every other person in this room. That you matter not only to God, but to the rest of his family. You see, rather than sort of dismantling family, what is Jesus doing? He is establishing a better, greater eternal family. He's doing an incredible thing. You see, the Pharisees, the opposition party, what are they about? They're about building walls. They're about rejecting other people. They're about saying, you are not good enough. Shape up. What is Jesus about? Jesus is about hospitality. About inviting you in. About bringing you in. And about solving this sin problem, not by berating you, but by dying on a cross and rising again from the dead to give you something better, something new. And this shows us the biggest difference, I think, uh, between those who are against Jesus and those who are for him. Did you see it in the text? It's silence. You see, he's not alone with the Pharisees. His disciples are there with him. And what are they doing? They're silent. This is easy to miss because there's no speech. There's no action. All of the attention seems to be on the Pharisees. But verses 46 through 50 show us that Jesus has a cohort of mothers and brothers and sisters with him. And what are they doing? They're listening. 
This shows us that, that this is Matthew's overall point. It's not leftovers, okay? That the Spirit's work is effective. That not everybody opposes him. Not everybody challenges him. Not everybody wants to fight with him. The Pharisees, they're the religious elite, right? They're, they're the ones who are sort of the, the upper echelon of Jewish society. And what does Jesus do? He comes in and he says, I don't want the upper echelon. I want the ordinary people. Do you know why? Because the ordinary people listen. They're not demanding. They don't say, give us a sign. Give me a miracle. Instead, they listen. Friends, if you're wondering today what it means to be a member in Jesus' family, I want to tell you that it takes silence. It takes humility. It takes a recognition of your need for Jesus. If I can say it in one word, it takes teachability. It takes the idea that you may recognize you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're doing. And that's okay. It takes the courage to raise your hand and to say, what are you talking about? I need to know. I need to know. And so let me ask you that this morning, friends. Have you learned that humility of teachability today? Has the Spirit done that work in your life? Are you listening? Are you listening? Are you submitting to the work Jesus is doing by the Spirit through his word? This is how Jesus builds his family. By gathering those who will listen. And unifying them around the word of God. Unifying them around his teaching. Around himself. I mean, come on, y'all. Again, Thanksgiving, right? What's the stereotype of Thanksgiving? Was there any family drama at your house? Probably, right? I mean, it's a stereotype for a reason. Why do families fight? Why is there family drama? Because people don't listen, right? People don't listen. You want to know why there's drama in the church? You want to know why there is division and fighting? Why there is opposition to each other? It's because we're not listening. It's because we're not silent. Instead, we challenge. How can you be a member of the family of Christ? And how can you live at peace with your fellow mothers and brothers and sisters in him? You can listen. Now, as any good parent will tell you, listening isn't just hearing, right? When a parent asks their child, are you listening to me? They don't mean like, okay, just repeat back what I said to you. No, repeat back what I said to you and then what? Go and do it, Right? Go and do it. So listening to Jesus, notice it's not just sitting there. It's not just hearing what he has to say and saying, well, that's nice, Jesus. But it's not for me. Listening to Jesus involves both hearing and doing. James tells us this in James chapter 1. To be doers of the word, not hearers only. We must hear the word, but friends, we must get up and we must go do it. So let me ask you the question Matthew 28, excuse me, 12, 38 through 50 asks all of us today. Are you for Jesus or are you against him? Are you for him or are you against him? Are you demanding things of him? Are you telling him or are you trying to negotiate or bargain? Lord, I'll serve you. 
if you answer that prayer I've been praying for years. I'll submit myself. I'll give myself over to my mothers and brothers and sisters in service of the church. But you've got to do something for me. You need to prove to me that you love me. Friends, can I tell you this morning that Jesus proves, Jesus proves his love for those who are for him by his family and by his word. This is why we gather morning and evening, every Lord's Day, not to just party and have fun, but to center ourselves and our lives around the word of God. And so, friends, if you find yourself opposed to him, can I suggest to you to stop talking and start listening? That's hard. That's hard work. But here's the payoff. Jesus will do it in you by his Holy Spirit. And, friends, are you for Jesus this morning? If you're for Jesus, if you're listening to him, can I suggest to you that you will remove any obstacle in your way of getting the word of God? Remove every obstacle in your way from getting more Jesus by what we call his ordinary means of grace. Friends, I want to tell you this morning that if you are either opposed or for Jesus, you can trust these words, these words that are so familiar to all of us, I hope. We know that Jesus loves me. Why? Because we heard it. Because the Bible tells us so. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would humble our spirits. We pray that we would listen to you. That we would be still and know that you are God. That there would be no evil, adulterous blindness in us. But that we would trust in the words of Jonah that we would trust in the ordinary, that we would trust in the unextraordinary, that we would trust your word. Do this work in us by the power of your spirit and so, in so doing, protect us from the evil one. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.